0: In writing to the church at Rome, the Apostle Paul concludes the 11th chapter in verse 36 with these words. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Again, Paul says, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul has captured a lot in that uh, short sentence. Um, uh, A a massive amount of theology is captured right there. And uh, I will not pretend to even hardly scratch the surface uh, today. But last week we looked and announced that we would try to begin looking at uh, fundamental doctrines of the uh, Word of God hoping uh, to arrive mainly at the doctrines of grace, but before we do, to establish some things about the doctrine of God himself. Last week, we looked at God the creator, and thank God that he, of his own will, uh, chose to create this world, all things seen and unseen, you and I included, and understand that God had need of none of the creation. God was uh, fully... uh, satisfied content in himself and through himself without any of the creation but for whatever reason it moved God to create this world and then also to uh, make a world for us which is glory where we will be one day by the redemption we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if God will help us today though I'd like to look at God's eternality meaning the eternal nature of God But also a term that theologians use, and it's not used very often outside of theologians, it's called the aseity of God, meaning God's self-existence. In other words, that God exists of himself uh, without uh, the need of any energy or power from any other source. Of course, God is the only one that can do that. He is the only being that exists of himself. And the word of God, as we see here from the pen of Paul, teaches that very truth, that God exists of himself without the need or the help of any. In fact, he told David in Psalm 50, verse 11, he said, if I were hungry, I would not tell thee. <laughs> he says, for all the cattle of the fields are mine. He says, if I needed anything, David, I wouldn't tell you about it. Uh, but obviously God has need of nothing. He is also so expansive, God, that when Solomon dedicated the temple of God, he said even the, heavens, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee talking about the third heaven where the apostle paul was carried to he said even the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee Uh, of course his house here the house of god that solomon built he knew that god could not be contained therein it was not really a place for god uh, to be captured in but rather a place where people could come and worship the lord and god would choose to come and bless them Uh, so here the apostle says for of him through him And to him are all things. Now, to set it in context, we find that from Romans chapter 1 to the end of Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul very, um, some may not think succinctly, but if you think about it, in 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul has addressed every major doctrine of man and God. Uh, he lets us know about God the Creator, as we saw in Romans chapter 1 from last week, that even the nature that we see around us uh, testifies of his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. And then in Romans 1, he lets us know that the condition that we're in, that mankind is in, and that our culture is quickly uh, going to itself, is just simply a result of sin. God did not make the world with the intent that sin would be in this world. God made the world knowing sin would come into the world, and God made provision before he even made the world so that when sin did enter into the world, there would be a remedy for it. Uh, But God never intended for sin to exist in this world. So when we see things around us that are horrible and evil, wicked and tragic, uh, that is not at the hand of God. That cannot come, uh, none can justly say that that is God's fault. That is the fault of man, it's the fault of Satan, it's the fault of our fallen nature. It is not the fault of God. But as you read Romans chapter 1, you're going to find that, first of all, he lets us know that uh, uh, the gospel has a very important role in this world. The gospel we find in the first chapter of Romans, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. But then he goes on to say, for the wrath of God, though, is revealed uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes on and he begins to talk about how cultures devolve over time. And if you read any world history, you'll find that almost every major culture has followed the exact pattern of Romans chapter 1. And we're far down the path in our nation right now of Romans chapter 1. It's uh, a history that continues to repeat itself. Uh, Mankind may... uh, be renewed with revival, uh, moral revival in a land, and God blesses, and then before long, uh, what happens, sin begins to take its uh, toll upon a culture, And then maybe there'll be a revival again and and we go through the same pattern over and over and over again. And Paul will tell us in Romans chapter two that this is not exclusive to the Gentile world. This is true of the uh, Jews as well. So he says, y'all haven't escaped this either. He says, it's just as real in uh, Judea as it is in all the rest of the world who do not know God. He says, you may have the law, he says, but within Gentiles who don't have the law, do the things contained in the law. He said, they're a law to themselves. In other words, he says, they have the law of God written in their heart and they behaved better than the Jews did uh, who had the law of God. He said, so being a Jew and having the law of God, it was an advantage, but it wasn't an advantage if it wasn't used. The same could be said of us. Romans chapter 3, we find that the apostle Paul begins to lay out that every one of us, he said, there's none good, no, not one. But then as he begins to conclude Romans chapter 3, he lets us know that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a propitiation for our sins, a mercy seat, a place, Uh, where the blood of the Son of God would be shed and God would be satisfied. You go on through the book of Romans, you'll see all the major doctrines of Christianity brought forth. And then when Paul comes to chapter 11, he says, I love this in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now, this is a man who's just written about the judgment and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. But yet, when he concludes this writing on God's wisdom and God's judgment and uh, his ways, you know what he concludes? He says, I really haven't even begun to touch it. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how in is the judgments and his ways past finding out. For who had known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who had first given to him, and that should be recompensed unto him again. Who's given to God and now is owed anything From God, not one. He says, for of him. So he says, of all things that we've seen of the creation, of salvation, he says, of all things. For of him, that means from him, through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So when it says for of him, that means of means from. So that tells us that all things that are created, also all things of redemption, they're from, they're of God. They don't proceed from your will. They don't proceed from your ability. They don't proceed from your desire. They don't uh, proceed from your strength. This all proceeds from the will of God and the strength of God. Now, for that to be the case, creation, redemption, uh, there must be a being that is above these things. Uh, There must be a being that is outside these things. There must be a being being that's not subject to these things. Uh, First of all, let's look at the creation itself. God is above it. He is the creator. He is the only being uh, that is not created. A number of years ago, I was asked this question, was, is, was heaven itself, where God dwells, was that at one time not in existence? And in my natural reaction, my natural mind I said, no, heaven's eternal. It has to be. God has to have a place to dwell. But then I stepped back and thought, I'm thinking with a natural mind. See, when we look at our world, it's made up of three primary things, time, space, and matter. Well, God is the one who created time, space, and matter. So God did not need heaven to dwell in. Uh, So even heaven itself, where the throne of God is, where he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, there was a time when heaven itself did not exist. The only eternal thing that there is, I hate to put it that way, is God himself. God is the only eternal being. And from him, everything else has been created, even a heaven where God now dwells. Uh, The heaven where you and I will be by the mercy and grace of God at the last day. So all things that we see and even the things that are unseen have been made by God. And that's what uh, John tells us in John chapter 1 about the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And he goes on to let us know that all things were made by him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that we see and all the things that we cannot see were made by the power of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is eternal and he's the only eternal being and because of that everything that is created which is all things outside of God are subject to God if there was anything that was eternal in addition to God it could not be subject to him and so the fact that God is eternal and everything else is created, lets us know that God is over all things, and that from Him all things exist. And so then He's also the governor of all things that we see, and even the created world that we cannot see. And I derive comfort from that to know that He is sovereign over it all. Now that doesn't mean that God always intervenes in His sovereign power to thwart the things that are going on in this world. I wish that He would. Uh, There's a lot of wickedness that transpires, and I wish God would stop. And there's coming a day that he will bring it to its conclusion that sin will have its end. But for whatever reason, God suffers things to go on in this world that I wouldn't suffer. And I don't understand the reason. But I also don't spend a whole lot of time trying to ponder out the reason. Uh, For whatever reason, God has allowed it and suffered it to be so. And that's just the way that it is. I don't need him to explain to me why. He doesn't owe me an answer. As here Paul says, who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? He owes me no explanation uh, whatsoever. Why? Because I'm one of his created being subject to him. I'm just as subject to him as any other creature of his creation. And so I have no right to demand of God an answer for the things that I don't understand. Now, I thank God for the things I do comprehend and understand. And I will spend a lifetime just trying to understand the things he has revealed in his word. So again, Paul says, for of him, from God are all things. That means everything that you see, everything that you can't see that's been created, that has all come from God. He says, and through him. That means that God is the first cause of all things. As you read Genesis 1, that's very clear. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Some have asked, well, when was heaven where we will be at the last day? When was it made? I believe it was made right there in Genesis 1, verse 1. When he says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I believe in that moment, heaven that is eternal was created by the power of God. He established his throne in the heavens at that moment. Uh, in the beginning, why? Because as you go on and read about the creation, you're going to read about other heavens being uh, separated uh, from other parts of the creation. But as you find God, open up Scripture. He says, "In the beginning, God created the heaven." You know, it's interesting to me though that God does not, as He opens the Word of God, He does not try to defend the reality of God. He does not spend a lot of time trying to establish whether or not there is a God. He just writes that in the beginning, God, uh, he presupposes that man will know that there is a God. And if they don't, they're without excuse according to Romans chapter 1. Uh, They have no viable excuse to bring before his name uh, for denying the reality of God. The atheist, the agnostic, the one that says there is no God, and the one that says they don't know whether there's a God. They have no excuse whatsoever in their rejection of the knowledge of God's existence. So God does not spend time trying to defend whether he's real or whether he's not. He just declares himself. He says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now it goes on to say that the uh, earth was void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then four days later, he makes the sun, moon, and stars. So God, in the opening of creation, he's the first cause. Now, there, obviously the cause of sin is not with God. The cause of salvation is with God. So we do have to understand that there are some things that God is not the author of. And we can prove that because Paul tells the church at Corinth that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in the churches. Uh, So I know at least one thing that God did not author, and that is confusion. I can turn to the book of Genesis, the uh, 10th chapter, I believe it is. And you'll find where confusion is very clearly declared. There was a place called Babel. And in that place there was a tower that was being built by man for his glory so that he could reach to the heavens... And God, when He saw what man was doing, what did He come? He came and He confounded the languages. The word Babel now means confusion. And there's a reason why Babylon, uh, this world is compared to Babylon, because this world, in this world, you'll only find confusion. It's in the house of God, through the Word of God, that you'll find clarity about who God is and what it is that He has done. Uh, This world is full of confusion and a lot of confused people. Thank God that in the word of God we find clarity that we stand in need of. So understand that God is not the author of all things. But why he's not the author of confusion, he is the author of eternal salvation. Now it's interesting that many in this world who claim to be Christian will say that uh, God is the cause of sin and wickedness, confusion in this world. But then they'll turn around and say, but he's not the author of eternal salvation. In other words, they're, their own, they're at least the co-author with God of their own eternal salvation by accepting the reality of the gospel, by being baptized, by being doing any number of things. They've all of a sudden reduced God to being a co-author uh, and brought themselves up higher than what they ought to be. But here the Bible makes it clear that confusion, sin, and wickedness in this world, God's not the author of that. And we ought to say that and state that plainly without defense or without reservation. Just say clearly that God is not the one who brought these things into being. Now he suffered to be so and I don't understand again why he did. I don't know why he allowed Adam to take of that fruit. I don't understand. I don't know that I ever will. I don't know if in glory God will tell us the whole reason why. And if he doesn't, that's fine, because David says, when I wake with his likeness, I'll be satisfied. So whether I know or don't know, I'm going to be satisfied. (laughs) So I'm not going to sit and uh, wonder about the things that the Bible doesn't speak of. I don't need to know. So again, it says, for of him and through him. That means, again, that he is the channel. He's the means by which all things are, meaning the things of creation and the things of salvation. And then it says, and to him. So he is the creator. He is the cause, but he's also the end. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He is the alpha and the uh, omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, So here is creation, here's redemption, it's of Him, it's through Him, and lastly, it's to Him. In other words, God did this not for you, but primarily He did it for Himself. For His own glory, God has made all things that are seen and unseen, and also uh, for Himself, God has redeemed uh, the elect uh, people of God. Yeah, he did it again primarily for himself. You happen to be the blessed recipient of his deliverance and his redemption and his salvation. But according to what Paul says here in the last verse of Romans chapter 11, God primarily did that for himself. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Turn with me to the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul again speaks some of the most profound language found. In all human writing. Now obviously he says these things by inspiration of the Spirit of God. And that's why it's so profound. Acts chapter 17 for Bible readers. You know this is when the Apostle Paul comes to Athens. And when he comes to Athens. He begins to be challenged for his preaching on the resurrection from the dead. And so he's arrested. And he's taken to the Areopagus. And they want to know about this new doctrine. Verse 19 whereof thou speakest. So you have the Stoics and the Epicureans, these philosophers, who love to do nothing else but to hear or tell some new thing. And you've got some of God's people that are that way. They don't want to hear the old things of election and predestination and our salvation in Christ. They want to hear or tell some new thing. Now, I love to hear election and predestination and the redemption in Christ brought to me sometimes from a different angle uh, shine more light on it than what I currently have. I certainly want that, uh, but I don't want some man standing up here bringing new things that are outside the Word of God. I'm satisfied with what the Word of God teaches. I'm like Jacob was when those wagons were brought to him out of Egypt and he saw it. He said, it's enough. He was satisfied with what he saw. When I was 12 years of age and I saw the doctrines of grace uh, uh, that Saturday evening, Evening. I was satisfied then, and now for 30 years, I've maintained that satisfaction through the help and mercy of God. I don't need more. Uh, now, I don't want to know more about it. I want to understand it better, but as far as the simplicity that I find in the Word of God and the doctrines of grace, I'm satisfied with that and have been uh, for three decades now. But anyway, here the Apostle Paul, he deals with these people. They want to hear or tell some new things, so they hear about the resurrection from the dead, and that's something new, and they want to hear about it. And so they arrest him, and he's got to go and give his defense. And if it's not satisfactory, he's going to be put to death here. Now, so far, I've never had to give a defense of God and my life beyond the line that I give an adequate defense. My preaching has been before the people of God who, for the most part, have been ready to receive it. But here's the Apostle Paul. Think about it. Imagine if you had to preach a sermon, and if you didn't pass, you were going to be put to death. So here is the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill. He stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, "Ye men of Athens, I perceive this is verse 22. He says, "I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious." Now remember, this is a man preaching for his life. <laughs> but notice his disregard for his life. He didn't care about his own life. He made that clear as he was journeying to uh, Jerusalem and would ultimately go to Rome. And they let him know that if he went to Jerusalem that he would be bound. He would end up dying. He says, I know this. He says, the Spirit has testified me that wherever I go, bonds and afflictions abide me. So he says, I haven't counted my life dear to myself. He said, that doesn't matter. What does matter is the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that if the day ever came that it was outlawed in our culture, our nation, the preaching of the gospel, that I would not fear to go forward and continue preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know that I would, but uh, I hope we don't have to find that out. But I hope if that day comes that I would still do what I'm doing right now. We might have to bring down a live stream, take down a sign, start meeting in homes to do it. Uh, But uh, I hope that we would uh, persevere in our service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, Paul says as he goes with, he said, as I pass by, he says, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. Now I'm sure that's got their attention already. Their teeth are set on edge. But notice what he goes on to say, for as I pass by and beheld your devotions, (laughs) in other words, your pagan worship, your idolatry, He said, I found an altar with this inscription in capital letters to the unknown God. He says, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. Paul was very wise and cunning, seeing that the Lord had told the disciples to be that way. He says, ye be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And here in this moment, the apostle Paul is being wise as a serpent. He passes by. See, these Greeks, these Stoics and Epicureans, they were concerned they might have missed some God. And if they did, they didn't want that God offended. So they make this order that's basically to any God they might miss. Any God they might overlook. Now, I'm thankful that when you and I assemble, we don't have to worry about over... Well, we don't have to worry about overlooking our God. We may not pay attention to him like we should. We may not honor him like we should. But we don't have to worry about which God it is that we're worshiping. Uh, I think we're all pretty clear on that. I've told you about a dentist that I had several years ago. Very fine woman. Very godly woman. Uh, She was Hindu... And I was intrigued. I'd never met a Hindu person that I was aware of, or at least had conversation with. And so I began to ask her. I said, well, tell me about your God. She said, well, which one do you want to know about? We have about three million of them. Uh, of course, I was uh, <laughs> you know, flummoxed by that. Three million gods. And her and her husband had one child. She says, but our son likes Christianity because it's a lot easier to keep up with one God than three million. I thought, yeah, I can understand why. Um, Three million gods, think about that. I mean, who in the world sat around and conjured up three million gods? Somebody has, and you can't keep up with them. So like the Athenians, they said, well, just in case we don't want to offend any, we're going to also put an altar to the unknown God. So Paul takes... This opportunity. He says, well, this God whom ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Notice what Paul says about this God. He said, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth life Give it to all life and breath and all things. And he said, And made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and had determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So here we find that the Apostle Paul declares this God to them. He says, number one, this is what you need to know about. He says, God made the world. Uh, Just as we said last Sunday, one of the primary things we need to know about God is God is the maker of all things seen and unseen. And Paul thought it was important that the Athenians know that God made the world. So he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. That means he's master. That's what the word there, Lord, means is master. He is master of heaven and earth. Now I doubt these Athenians liked hearing that the God that they were ignorantly worshipped had made all things uh, uh, and they, uh, he was their master. But Paul makes no apology for it. Then he goes on to say he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Well look throughout the world where Paul was preaching how many times did he come to some temple that had been raised up for a God to dwell in? Think about Ephesus. There was the temple of the goddess Diana. All over that world, especially in Greek culture, there were temples that were reared up to the various gods that they worshipped. And here the apostle is now taking a swipe at them all, saying the God that made heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples that were made with hands. Neither is worship with men's hands. The worship that God receives is not the worship of our hands. It's the worship of our tongue that proceeds from our heart. Uh, That is why the worship that we're engaged in this morning is so simplistic. God has uh, called us to sing, to pray, and to expound the word of God and to fellowship with the saints of God. That's the extent of what he's really called us to do. Read in Acts chapter 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine in breaking of bread prayers Uh, And a missing one. And fellowship. Uh, Those were the four main things that the early church continued steadfastly in. What the apostles taught. Uh, Also uh, the Lord's Supper in prayer and in fellowship one with another. Very simple, is it not? I was reading about before Christmas that whole week. I kept reading various articles about how many churches were not going to hold services on Christmas Day. And which is amazing to me when you see all these signs everywhere. Jesus is the reason for the season, but yet we're not going to have worship on the Lord's Day. I didn't understand that. And it was interesting. The last time that had happened was about nine or 11 years before, I can't remember. And the percentage of churches that had decided not to meet on Christmas Day had grown quite a bit. And then I began to read the reason why. It wasn't just because crowds were going to be smaller, our crowd, I expected to be smaller that day as well. But when you have employees that have to operate all manner of means for worship and they're not there, how do you worship? If you're accustomed to all the various things that man has added to the worship service going on in order for worship to occur and they don't show up to fulfill their obligations and their jobs, what do you do? You know, I find that in... The book of Acts, the sixteenth chapter, there was a lady named Lydia of the city of Thyatira. There wasn't enough men for a synagogue, so what does she do? She meets with the other women, and there they are by a riverside on the day of worship, and they prayed. That's all they could do. That's what they did. They met and they prayed. One glorious, one of the many glorious things. But one glorious thing about the New Testament church, it can go anywhere. We can worship in any place. Um, if we know a few songs, don't even need a hymnal. If the man of God has enough committed to memory, doesn't even have to have a Bible. Our worship is so simple that we could gather in a home, a nursing home, uh, out by a creek site, wherever it would be. And if we had the desire then to assemble for worship, we could worship. We don't need all the elements that many have brought into worship to do so here. Notice again that here Paul says that God is not worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things." So he makes it clear that God, first of all, made the world and all things therein, and he's Lord or Master of heaven and earth, and he doesn't dwell in the temples that those men had made to God uh, so that God would have a place to dwell. He said he doesn't dwell in these places. He says and he does not worship with men. He all the things that you are employing uh, for worship. He said God does not receive that worship. That is not what God wants in worship. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ made clear uh, to the woman at the well of Samaria there in John chapter 4 what it, how it is that we're to worship God. He says God is a spirit. And they that worship him must, not if they want to, if they like to, he says, must worship him in spirit and in truth. One of the reasons that I am so dogmatic about the way in which we practice our worship is because we're worshiping God. We're not worshiping ourselves and our own desires. And so if God has said, this is how I want to be worshiped, if I'm going to worship God, I've got to do it the way that he has prescribed, the way he's commanded. Otherwise, it's not worship at all. Otherwise, what it is is for my entertainment or to build myself up instead of magnify the name of God. And God, throughout the word of God, Old Testament or New, has been fairly simple in what he's commanded a man to serve him and worship. Anyway, Paul goes on to say, he's not worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, saying he give it to all life and breath and all things and made of one blood all nations. Go all the way back to Adam. <laughs> then you can proceed forward to Noah and from one blood... He said he's made all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation. And it was God who set forth where we live and so on and so forth. He says that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So Paul took it from a very broad topic to a very personal one. He said, first of all, God made made the world and all things therein. That's pretty broad. But then he goes on, he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. That becomes very personal. That was a lot for these Stoics and Epicureans to accept. But notice what he says also, even one of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So he begins to quote their own writers. He says, uh, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. He says, in the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent, because he appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus Christ, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath made, given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. Paul passed the test. They didn't kill him that day. When he mentioned the Lord Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead, some of them mocked about it. They, they were Their curiosity was stirred enough. They weren't enraged. They mocked. Others said, We want to hear more about this. But here Paul says, There's some ignorance that God in past times winked at. That means God, God suffered it. We're past that time now, though. And God has clearly declared in the New Testament how He is to be honored and worshiped. And so we would have no excuse. And He says, There's coming a day where He will judge the world and righteous by the man, that man, whom He hath ordained, where He hath given assurance to all men, and that He hath raised Him from the dead. So here the apostle lets us know that once again, God's a creator. That in him we live, move, and have our being as we saw in Romans the 11th chapter. For of him, through him, and by him, or to him, excuse me, of him, through him, and to him are all things. And no wonder he would say to him be glory now and forever. Amen. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, Moses says this. He says, the eternal God is thy refuge. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27, he says, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Now, it's interesting. So here is God declaring through Moses to the children of Israel in the very last chapter of the books of Moses. He lets them know the verse before, There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, the God of uh, of uh, of He so there's none like Him. Of all the gods of this world that men have contrived and made, there's no God like Him. So he says, there's none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help, and in His excellency on the sky. So God is not bound on this earth. Again, we look at uh, this world and we are bound. We're bound by time. Uh, time is sometimes my friend, and sometimes it is not... Uh, uh, Two days ago, I was um, going over to uh, Miss Amy's mother's burial, and I had to do a little work that morning, and I got a little distracted, and all of a sudden, time passed, and as I got in the car, it showed me that I only had two minutes to spare, and I got to Mulberry, and of all things, there was a train coming through, and I, I hate being late. I'd rather be 30 minutes early than to be 30 seconds late, and so... Miss Amy, I have to apologize. Getting to your mother's, I broke a few laws to get there on time. And so uh, so I'm bound by time. God is not. I'm bound by space. And I'm bound in this matter that I'm made up of. Why is it that David would say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. Why? He said, for then would I fly away and be at rest. What was happening there? David was bound by the matter of his carnal body. And there was a part of him that desired to fly away and be at rest with God. But he was bound by nature. And he could not do the things that he would as Paul would tell us in the 7th chapter of the book of Romans. I'm bound by space. I'm bound by this matter of this body. I'm bound by time. God is not bound by those things. He is the maker of those things. Sometimes we say that God uh, is outside of time, and and there is a truth to that. God made time. He's not bound by it. God uses time. God's on time. God steps into time. Uh, But God is the creator of time, so time is subject to Him. As we saw last week in Joshua 10, when Joshua said, Son... Stand thou still in Gibeon, what happened? God suspended the laws of nature and time stopped. Time stopped for a little while. The sun didn't go down for about a day. God's not bound by time. I think about in Luke, the 8th chapter, the Lord Jesus is on his way to the house of Jairus because Jairus has come and let him know that he has a daughter that's very sick, sick to death. And so he begins his journey. And this man, Jairus, is a very important man. He's a ruler among the Jews. And on the way, there comes a woman with an issue of blood. And she had that issue for 12 years. That little girl was 12 years old as well. So for as long as Jairus had that little girl, this woman had this issue of blood. Her issue was chronic. But yet you've got a little girl who has an acute issue. If it had been me, I'd have said to the lady, I'll be back. You've dealt with this for 12 years. 12 more hours won't hurt. I'll be back. Jesus didn't operate that way. You know why? Time did not bind him. So, and he didn't get in a hurry. He didn't get concerned. He didn't get worried. He knew the daughter would die. He knew it. Matter doesn't stop him, space does not control him, time does not restrain him. And so, of course, the daughter dies. While he stops to help the woman with an issue of blood. I can only imagine what that father felt like. I remember when um, Evelyn broke her leg and and Lydia called me. How almost panicked that I was until I could get there and see for myself. When Adley broke his the same way. A few other times our children have had situations arise that just got me moving very quickly. So I can only imagine what Jairus felt like while he stood there and watched as the Lord healed this woman with an issue of blood. Jesus didn't get in a hurry because time does not constrain him. But he gets to, well, Jairus' servants come to him and says, Your daughter's dead. Trouble not the master. Don't trouble him, it's beyond help. Well, that was the time he needed to trouble Jesus the most, <laughs> meaning he needed to pray. And I love what Jesus says in response. He says, fear not, believe only, and thy daughter shall be made whole. Well, apparently Jairus, he believed that because they journey on to the house. And when Jesus comes to the place, he says, you show me where she lays. He says, she's not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, so he put them all out of the room except for the mother, the father, Peter, James, and John. And then he just looks down and he says, Young maid, arise. And immediately life is restored to that body and he turned to the mother and the father says, Give her to eat. See, time did not bind the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Her spirit leaving her body uh, was nothing uh, that he could not control. That was nothing outside of his ability. Why? Because he is the eternal God. Again, in Deuteronomy it says, There is none like the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help. And in his excellency... On the sky. Aren't you thankful that our God is not propped up on some pillar here in this building and we have to come here uh, to obtain his help and he's restrained just to the walls of this building uh, like Dagon was there for the Philistines. That's not the God that we serve. The God that we serve, what happens? He rideth upon the heaven for our help. He's always in all places. There's no place where God is not. Uh, again, he's not bound by space. Uh, a matter cannot control him. I recall in after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ the disciples being locked in an upper room and Jesus just walked right through the door he didn't knock didn't need a key just passed right through when he was resurrected and they rolled away the stone the body was already gone Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away to get out of that tomb he just passed right through it the whole reason that stone was rolled back by the angel was to reveal the reality of the resurrection. Matter did not stop the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now here he is in his glory and matter would not stop him. This world would not restrain him. There were times in his earthly ministry when his hour was not yet come. He would just pass right through men. Other times he would speak and men would fall back as dead. You find over and over that Jesus was not ruled by time. He was not ruled by space. He was not ruled by matter. Why? Because he made these things. And as such, he's the creator of them. He's the governor over them. And they're subject to his power and to his control. And I find great uh, encouragement to know that. There's coming a day that this matter that stands before you will drop to the earth and its dust will pass away. But the matter of this body has been taken care of through the redemption we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes back the second time without sin unto salvation, he will speak and the cells and the dust of my body will be a reassembled back together and fashioned like the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the, matter of the matter of this body will not stop him at the last day. Space will not be a problem for him. He will just appear in the sky. And the Bible says we will meet the Lord in the air. Uh, time will not be an issue for him either. And God is always right on time. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Again, I've said, time's my enemy. Every Sunday, time is my enemy. I'm racing against a clock every week to try to uh, set forth truths that are very important, I believe, to the child of God. And yet, I know lunchtime is important as well. Uh, time is... Usually not our friend. Time is something that constrains us. There's sometimes times I wish I had more of time. There's times that I wish time would hurry up. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. We get to the end of a year and say, well, where did it all go? Well, you wished it away because every day say, I wish this day would hurry up. Wish this day would hurry up. And then you get to the end of the year and say, wonder where it all went. Well, you wished it to hurry up. It did. Uh, you got your wish. It went fast. Um, thankfully though God who made time who governs time is never governed by time as much as I would like to dictate to God to come back in this time right now I don't have that power but if God says time is no more he's coming and I can't stop him not that I would want to but I couldn't if I desired and there's the wicked of this world that would want to I find in the life of Jesus, another time that he was not controlled by time. He came to the wild Gadarean, if you'll recall. And when he came to the wild Gadarean, he said, what is your name? He says, our name is Legion, for we are many. And what did those devils say to the Lord Jesus Christ? Art thou come before the time? In other words, they said, we know that you're going to destroy us at the last day, but it's not the last day yet. You're ahead of schedule. No, he wasn't. He was right on time uh, to help that poor individual that was beleaguered by those devils that day. And so he drove those devils into the swine as they requested, and the swine, of course, cast themselves off a cliff into the sea and drowned. But here the devils, they thought Jesus was not operating in time, on time, on schedule. And so the devils say to him, why are you come before the time? Jesus didn't have to give them an answer and say, well, here's the justification of why. And he didn't answer that. He didn't answer the criticism. He just made clear he was the God of time. And he would do as he would when he would. So again, God is not controlled by time. He's not limited by space. He's not limited by matter. He created it all. I was reading this week discussion on whether or not a body should be buried or cremated and I have thoughts on that. I believe that we ought to follow the example that we find throughout the word of God, Old Testament and New, and be buried. Now if you believe in cremation and you follow that pattern, don't worry, Jesus can get your body out of the ground as well or wherever your ashes are scattered. But in that discussion where people were trying to debate on which was right which again to me the matter is settled when you read that God buried Moses if God used burial to dispose of the body of Moses that doesn't mean that like with Jesus well some they were he was just they were following the culture of the day well God wasn't following the culture of the day when God buried Moses but either way for those what did Job say Job is probably the oldest book of the Bible. Lived in the very earliest of days. And he said that even though the skin worms destroy this, my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall behold behold for myself, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. He just said, even though the skin worms destroy this body, though my reins are completely gone, He said, there's coming a day that I shall see the Redeemer, my Redeemer. He said, I will see him for myself and not another. The Bible lets us know that our bodies shall be changed. They will not be exchanged. They will be changed. They'll be sown, buried in corruption, raised in incorruption. The matter of our body does not constrain the power of God. Why? Because He made these bodies. He took the dust of the earth in Genesis chapter one, and He made a body. He made He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. In Him we live, we move, we have our being. So again he says, There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun who rideth upon the heaven in thy hell and in his excellency on the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Why is that verse so comforting? Because if God himself is not eternal, then he doesn't have charge of eternity. And eternity is a very important matter to me. <laughs> There's a lot of things that depend on God being eternal. A whole lot. <laughs> How can I... Trust that I have eternal life, unless God Himself is eternal. How can God give something that God is not, and that God does not have in His attributes? God is eternal. And because of that, I can trust that the life that I have in Him is an eternal life. Jesus says, I give unto them, John chapter 10, eternal life, and they shall never perish. (laughs) That is a promise that I lean on. But one of the reasons that I can lean on it is what I find in Deuteronomy where it says the eternal God is thy refuge. Not just the God is is our refuge, but the eternal God. We find that the Apostle Paul would write to Timothy and he says, Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever." He would say later to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. But well, what good would it do to lay hold on eternal life if there wasn't a king who is eternal? Uh, so the eternality of God is a very important matter to you and me because our life and glory depends on the reality that God himself is an eternal being and nothing else is. God is the only thing that is eternal. And God is also a God that has all power to exist within himself. Time is about gone, but... Remember what Moses was told in Exodus chapter 3. When he's trying to give all the excuses why he can't go and tell Pharaoh what God had said to let his people go. One of the excuses is, well, who am I going to tell them has sent me? God answered that very quickly. He says, you say, you tell them that I am has sent me. I am that I am has sent you. He says, so you just go tell them that I am has sent me. I am. Okay, what does that mean? It means Jehovah. When you find in the Old Testament, in particular, Lord, capital L O R D, all caps, that word is Jehovah. And that word defined means the self existent eternal one. The self existent, meaning he exists of himself. He doesn't need the power or ability of any other. He's self existent, but he's also the eternal one. And that's what he tells Moses. You go and you tell the Israelites, I am has sent you. Well, what does that mean? He says, in other words, God is just telling Moses, you tell them that the God that sent you is the same God who spoke to Abraham. I am the same God that I was. I am the same God that I will be. And in the future, when we get to that God, he's still the same God then that he is today. That's why he could say in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, Uh, today and forever. In Malachi, one of my favorite verses, he says, I am the Lord, all capital, uh, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Think about that for a moment. How important is it? The immutability of God, which proceeds from him being eternal, immutable means unchangeable. Well, according to that verse, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore, because I don't change, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And you as spiritual Israelites, that's important to you, or it should be. If God could change, then all of a sudden you're in grave danger. He says, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. So Moses has told you, tell them I am, has sent you. That'll be a sufficient answer. They'll understand. Apparently they did because when Moses arrived on the scene, they trusted him, they believed him. Now they would complain against him many times, but they, they followed after him uh, throughout those days. So the God that we serve, again, he's Jehovah. That word is a beautiful word. He's self-existent. He doesn't need any. As Paul said there in Acts chapter 17, that God doesn't need anything. As God told David in Psalm 50, If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. Could you imagine? How would you even feed him if he was? God does not need us for anything. But yet in his mercy, he made us. And in his grace, he redeemed us. That's amazing to me. A God who was self-existent, had glory without making this world could show forth his grace and mercy without us. None of this was needed. But yet God in his kindness chose knowing that we would fall to create us in spite of that, knowing that when we would fall, he had already elected us and loved us, that he would have to send his son to redeem us. Now, if it had been me, and I could see in advance that you would do something that would require the life of my son. We would have separated paths right then as soon as I could see it. Because I, I love you, but you're not getting my son. The other day I walked out the door and Adley's tractor was parked over at Hebron. And I couldn't see him anywhere. And that road is very busy. My heart nearly stopped and I ran over, thankfully a lady stopped and she said, are you looking for a little boy? I said, I am. She said, I saw him go to the back of the church with a dog. I thought, Thank God the dog's with him. And I went, and I still couldn't see him. And I began yelling for him. Of course, I'm just about to lose it. Um, and all of a sudden here comes the little boy running, smiling. <laughs> and I was ever so grateful. I'll tell you right now, in that moment I saw how much I loved him and how much I love him. And I love you, but you're not getting my son. But here's how much God loved us. In spite of knowing what we would do, he created us anyway and then sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem us that were under the law. As we ate of that table last night to show in picture what God gave up through the giving up of his son, he willfully did that so that you and I would be delivered. And there's coming the eternal day when we will glorify the Son of God and His Father throughout all the days of eternity, if we could put it that way, for the great mercy of His kindness, not only in redemption, but I believe we'll worship Him for creation itself. And that we would say like Paul, for of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. So what should we do? We should glorify Him both now and forever. And with that we say, Amen. And may God bless you.